Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. All right. I guess this is the part where I say, uh, my name is Dave, and uh, I am speaking. He, him. Right. Yeah. Uh, Kosha and I are both she or her series pronouns, um, mm-hmm. but we have also um, in our family have at least one person who is um, non-binary. So we are being way more mindful about pronouns and trying to be really thoughtful about how we address people and make sure that we're being respectful. So. Oh, absolutely. And very appreciated. Of course. Especially given the... You know, some in some of this, the kind of very conservative, stringent communities, they will misgender on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think we, especially during this season, we've been like really, really careful. Our whole platform here is about unothering, like right. talking to people are othered, and I can't imagine being like misgendered on purpose and how just alienating that must feel. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So. I had to agree with that. <laughs> So welcome. Thank you so much for well, it's a pleasure to be here. Us. You're joining us from California. Is that correct? That's correct. Whereabouts in California? Uh, Northern California, uh, just a little bit south of the Oregon border. So we've got lots of wildfires close. Yeah, yeah. The air quality has been pretty bad, but uh, at least we don't really have much chance of uh, the fire reaching us. So we're... We can't necessarily breathe great. I'm dealing with a little bit of a sinus thing myself because the air quality has been pretty poor, but but we're safe. I'm a I'm a marathon runner. I'm a distance runner. And I've just been hearing, you know, obviously the heat has been really bad this summer, but people trying to train even in, you know, like Arizona, Nevada, like where you're not in the fires, so you don't think about it all the time, but the training has been so terrible because of the heat. Also, the air quality is yeah. such shit. Yeah. David came to us from one of our previous guests. Shayla, Shay, I don't know if you know this, but um, Elisa and David, you guys used to work together at some some point, correct? Yeah, yeah, we used yeah. to do theater together. So oh. thank you so much for you know agreeing to do this this podcast where you don't even know us. We really oh, it's a pleasure. It. it sounds like fun. Uh, she used to do musical direction for plays. We did act together a couple of times. That was nice. Yeah, that was before she went back to school. She was she for for uh, counseling. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. Because I was like, yeah, not to not to put an age on us, but man, that's <laughs> been at least like fifteen years back, maybe twenty. <laughs> well, Elisa and I went to high school together, and she she is my slightly older sister, so age right. us is not a yeah yeah. yeah. Don't all worry right, about that. good stuff. I know we know all the ages of everyone who's yeah. around here. <laughs> 
generally. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about who you are and through your background and I grew up in a very, very sheltered household. Um, you could definitely say I was fairly privileged, although not wealthy necessarily. Uh, I've only ever really lived one place my whole life. I moved across the street to live above a garage for about uh, 15 years. But uh, then after my dad died, I moved back in. Uh, my wife and I moved back in with my mother and are keeping an eye on her and on the house. So I've, I've lived a very, very comfortable life. Uh, I had an opportunity to go away to school. I had full ride scholarships to multiple places um, because I was lucky enough to do really well on the PSATs back when I was in high school. So uh, I was in the National Merit Scholar system and I could have taken a full ride to a lot of different places. And I decided to stay home because I liked it better here. Never did get much in the way of scholarship money from Humboldt State. I was fully paid for with a variety of different scholarships. So I, I didn't end up having to pay, but Humboldt was a, a cheap school. I definitely missed out on, you know, that $50,000 in priority parking type experience. But I just, <laughs> I, uh, I love staying home. I love being with family. My family's always been very important to me. And when I was growing up, I had, a, had an uncle who was an invalid and I was just really worried that if I moved away, that my uncle would die while I was gone and that oh. I would never really get a chance to say goodbye to him. And I knew that like having me around was really important to his life. So um, I've jumped around from job to job a couple of times. I uh, ran my own business for 14 years. I did web design and graphic design. I just sold it this last year. Um, before that, I was a tour guide at a, at a Victorian mill. I was a hat embroiderer. Like I, I jumped through a lot of different stuff. And now I'm a, a high school teacher. I teach theater and I teach uh, English and history. So a wide variety of things. Is the hat embroidery, like, is that a market that is like untapped potential? <laughs> no, it was, it was I, I used to watch some embroidery machines. So like, I, I wasn't doing anything skilled. I would just like sit there and be listening to music or something. And then like, checking on the machines as they were embroidering hats okay okay you were like little songs in quality my head control and management you were not actually like embroidering hats yeah I, I was not uh i was not sitting there lovingly lovingly stitching things because uh, i was just imagining like oh what a great like if you were doing that and then you'd done like been like a tour guide and doing this, i'm like this is a perfect combination for someone who does theater at the high school because it's all these like disparate skills but they all come together in theater. How to tell an exciting story to people who might not even be there to be like, there he was like, oh, my wife wanted to go on this, you know, on this tour or, you know, teenagers who are like, we're here for a class trip. Um, yeah, oh, there's, there's definitely some crossover there. <laughs> and like, how do you get those people excited about what you're doing? And then like, how do you make costumes? And wow, what a great, what a, I really like the image of you stitching better than what you watching machines. That's for sure. <laughs> so now you're a high school teacher and you, you uh, know that you're married. Do you have yeah. any children that you would like to acknowledge? No children. Okay. <laughs> and you'd know, like to sometimes acknowledge. people have children and they're like, I don't want to talk about that. Um, okay. So you and your wife. Right, I have one that I like and then one that's a. <laughs> so you've been married. How long have you been married? Only been married about two years here. I was married before. I am divorced, uh, and I was married a couple years that time too. <laughs> All right. 
Um, and how did you meet your current partner? Uh, we met through theater, uh, although she actually, officially we met years earlier when her boyfriend at the time uh, stopped by my house to, for a board game night. Uh, so I did actually meet her then. She mostly just hung out downstairs and, and didn't really come up and talk to anybody. So wow. years later, we put it together that, oh yeah, didn't, didn't I come to your house at some random? Oh yeah, yeah, you did. Interesting. Are you still friends with that guy? Yeah, actually, I'm going to be the best man in his wedding coming up here soon. Wow. What a little small world. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Humboldt is a very small world. <laughs> it is. Your it wife is, is actually going to be, she is also going to be on our podcast in a couple of weeks. So Yay. we're going to get both. Yeah, both sides. Yeah. All right. So you're married. You're previously married. Both times it's been a couple of years, right? Yeah. Um, I assume that you're intending this one to last longer than the. Oh, yes, one. indeed. <laughs> And I'm still very good friends with uh, with my oh, ex-wife. Wow. Okay. That, I mean, you don't hear that very often either, right? I think sometimes yeah, no, marriage we're, is- We're fun. exceptionally close friends. Uh, I still consider her sister to be my sister. Uh, I still go over and like take care of her mom on occasion when is needed or things like that. So wow. yeah, we, we're still very close. What have your relationships been like as you enter these relationships, as you're meeting people, what the similarities and differences might have been and what you learned from those experiences? Oh, like uh, talking specifically about my, my wife and my previous wife in this yes. case? Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good place to start because then if there sure. are other people, we can pull those people in too and talk about yeah, them sure. generally. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so the first time that I met my ex-wife, uh, we were both very young. I was 23, she was 18. I was a college student who had been pulled into helping out at a high school production. And then after she graduated, uh, we were close friends and we ended up starting to date. And really the experience with my ex-wife was that we got together too young. And at the time she ended up kind of coming to see me as an authority figure, mm. like because I was five years older than her and she had been... Uh, in a household that was very strict. And so it ended up with me being like the person she needed to rebel against. And oh. so like that really didn't work as a, as a format for us. Like there were a few times that I would catch her lying about things like, like underage drinking or things like that, that would have been more okay if she just would talk to my face, but like, she felt like she needed to go behind my back on things. And this was before we were even married. This is back when mm -hmm. we were dating. We ended up being engaged for uh, about five years before we got married, but we just did not gel as a relationship. And we were trying to fit into a societal mold too early. We both kind of got to the, okay, this is a person I like. What does society say we need to do now? Society says, this is the person that I like. All right, now we need to get married. And so by the time that we got engaged, we started to realize that there were some real problems. And by the time that we got married, I think both of us knew we probably shouldn't get married, but we were trying to do the thing that society tells you you need to do. And we'd been engaged for five years and putting things off. And the next step was that we needed to get married. Sure. Yeah. As you look back on that, you know, reflect on that experience, because that relationship sounds like, you know, from the time you met her until the time you got married, it was what, the better part of eight or nine years, almost 10 years, right? So like, as you reflect on that, like, what were the standout sort of moments or clues that you had where you're like, oh, this wasn't the right path 
for us or for me? I think largely there were individual moments where it was just really clear that we wanted different things in life. What I ended up coming to describe it as to myself and and to her later is that uh, like I was a builder, like I liked to build things. I wanted to create things. I wanted to build toward a future, build a home. And she wanted to experience things. She didn't care as much about building things as long as she was getting experiences. So if she found out that there was a, a bonfire, one that specifically sticks in my head, there was going to be a bonfire on the beach at like three in the morning, even if we hadn't been getting much sleep lately, like she wanted to go out and be at the bonfire at the beach because she didn't want to miss anything. And she had this fear of missing out on stuff. And I just kind of wanted a little bit of stability. And I wanted to have a relationship where like I could rely on things and I knew that we were building stuff together. And it felt like she was just always out desperately trying to experience things. We were on different journeys. I was trying to build something at home and she was trying to experience, and those are both perfectly valid things, but it was putting us into conflict a lot. She had this dream of going North and wanting to be an actress up in Canada. Uh, She really wanted to do that. And she felt like being married to me was holding her back from that. And when we split up, that was part of her plan was that she was going to travel and that she was going to do a lot of things. Uh, She didn't end up traveling very much. She ended up staying around the area. She, I mean, she did travel a bit, but she never really moved yet. She's, she's still talking about it on occasion. And I don't want to be disrespectful at all, although it's probably will sound this way, is that, you know, given that she came from a certain type of household and then she was, you know, sort of lying and, and sort of pushing back against you, it's almost like she was acting out her late teenage years in your marriage, right? Or in your relationship, like... Don't, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to go and have fun. I'm going to live my life. And It's really true. And she and I have talked about it and acknowledged that because like her mother was very restrictive, kept her at home, wouldn't let her go out at all. Um, wow. That's very restrictive. Yeah. Yeah. She basically was acting out her teenage years during our marriage in some ways. Yeah. Wow. Yes. That would, I can totally imagine that. Yeah. We've gone a, a little bit without actually identifying or mm-hmm. having you identify now you don't have to, but you know, this is a season on, yep. um, you know, gender and sexuality spectra. Uh, I think your backstory clearly informs, you know, mm-hmm. what, where you are now. Would you like to like identify? Absolutely. On the spectrum, where, where are you, David? All right. I have a couple of things that are noteworthy. Uh, one is that I very recently have started to realize that I am demisexual, uh, which was a thing that I did not, didn't ever ever understand or know. Uh, I didn't really know that was an option for years. Uh, Also, uh, my wife and I are polyamorous. Okay, so I I want to then clarify. So you were not polyamorous with your previous wife. That's correct. And then when you met your current wife and got married, did you enter into this marriage polyamorously? Is that a, is that a verb or is that an adjective? I, or, I don't know if it is it, or not. It but, is, now. now it is. Or did it come later? Just so we could put kind of the timeline in here. My wife and I had talked about it a little bit, um, but it wasn't until we were getting close to getting married that we needed to have some real solid discussions about it uh, because my wife is bi. 
And part of what drove this was her fear of missing out on a part of her life. The idea that she would always be seen as being a straight woman because she would always be with me and that she would have just one partner and that partner would be a male. And that was a thing that was causing her a lot of stress as we were coming up to our wedding. So we started having some real discussions about it. There was definitely a lot of tension at times. So there was a very brief period uh, when we started to play around with this and try it out and discover what our what our identity was before I had decided that I was Polly and we were kind of thinking that maybe she was Polly and maybe I was not. Uh, there was a period where I had some jealousy issues uh, and we actually did briefly break up. And that happened while everybody was asleep. We decided we were going to break up at two in the morning and we had come to that decision, but we were just going to stay in bed together and just be friends. And, and we spent about four hours talking about things. And then after that four hours, before we ever told anybody that we had broken up, she turned to me and she said, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And she said, I don't want to lose you. And so she gave me a great big hug and we got back together. So, so it was never public that we broke up temporarily. It was during intermission. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, you know, how many relationships probably have that moment in there where it's like you're teetering on the brink and you're still talking. And then you kind of in the middle of that conversation, you come to this fact of like, no, I don't want to live my life without you. Right. What are our options here? And then find a way to make it work, right? If you're committed to each other and, and to the bond you have together. So I, I want to just quickly identify that someone who is polyamorous has multiple partners. However, it is not what a lot of people think about, which is like, just whatever, it's in a whatever. I think when people think of polyamorous, they think of an open relationship, which to your right. point, she is still not a whatever situation. But if we could, David or someone who is not me, because I don't understand the nuances, <laughs> um, if someone can, maybe define the two or, you know, compare and contrast the difference between a polyamorous relationship and an open relationship. Right. And, and this is something that I've had to explain to multiple people because there's a lot of misunderstandings. An open relationship, a lot of times the idea, as I understand it, and I don't have an open relationship, so I can't speak authoritatively about this. The idea is that you are committed to one person, but that you can sleep with other people. And the idea of an open relationship is basically that your commitment to one partner does not stop you from being sexually active and pursuing other things. And that is a style of polyamory, if that's something that somebody is interested in. My wife and I both have very different styles of polyamory that we practiced, uh, but we just have an understanding about it. Polyamory, the way that I practice it, is a commitment to, in my case, two partners kind of two and a half in a way. Uh, my my ex-wife and I still consider ourselves to be close enough that we are partners, but we are not actively, we're not actively dating in most ways, but we do occasionally snuggle and watch a movie together or something like that. And um, we do consider ourselves to be partners in a fashion. But I, I have two partners that I actually have full relationships with. To offer another spin on it, polyamorous relationships are open relationships. The idea of an open relationship being that like one or both partners 
can seek a relationship of some kind outside of the primary relationship out of that, you know, typically in a marriage, but, you know, a long-term commitment type situation that one or both partners can seek some kind of relationship with someone else or multiple someone else's outside of the relationship. But open can be any number of things. Open can be, look, if you go away on a business trip and you want to sleep with someone when you're there, you can sleep with someone and come back and I never want to hear about it ever. Um, but polyamory, as far as I understand it, it's much more thoughtful and considered and careful so that each partner's engagement with another person outside of the primary relationship is discussed and there are rules. It's very careful of the other, of that primary bond and other bonds that you might have. And there's a way of defining it so that every person in the chain or the set of branches feels comfortable knowing what is happening elsewhere. Absolutely. One of the words that is uh, principal in polyamory is the polycule, the idea of a polycule. So uh, for instance, if we have a board game night, like when we were having COVID uh, issues and everything was, uh, well, I mean, we still are, but when everything was super tightly closed down, we knew that we could still have a board game night with our polycule. So like my girlfriend and I and my wife and uh, her boyfriend or her girlfriend uh, could come over. My girlfriend's boyfriend could be there. We could have a small closed polycule and play board games together. So we, we do have fairly close relationships with each other in that way. Uh, there's the idea of the metamor, which is the person that is the, your partner's partner. And I'm lucky in that my partner's partner and I have a really good relationship. We're, we're good friends. We've been friends for years before my partner or my uh, girlfriend and I got together. Uh, we used to play board games and things together on occasions. Uh, so we have good conversations with each other. We share interests. Um, it's actually a lot of fun seeing how those relationships develop. Uh, my wife's girlfriend is just fantastically sweet. And she uh, knows that I have gluten and uh, dairy issues in my diet. And if I'm going to pick uh, Kelsey up at uh, Allison's house at some point, like, she will make some food that I can have. And when I show up, she says, come in, come in. I made some that you can have. Like, it's a very, very sweet and uh, protective and friendly environment. That's, that's amazing. And I think that is, that is, to me, that's the biggest difference between opening up a relationship and a polyamorous relationship. That, because both people are being very thoughtful. Both people have to wrestle with, their own feelings and to be really careful and to like, to check how they feel about what the other person's doing. Um, but secondly, you know, what you were saying is that your primary can have a secondary or a tertiary or whatever, and it needs to be a certain type of relationship. It can be a non-sexual, very intimate relationship. It can be a largely sexual, non-intimate relationship. It can be both. Uh, it can be just having that one person where you're like, so we're going backpacking for three months. See you later. Right. You know, it can just be this activity partner where you're spending a ton of time with them, but everyone's just so much more really intentional about how you engage with other people would be, I mean, that's a framework that I think every relationship could use friendship, you know, long-term commitments, partners, siblings, you know, 
parents to children, whatever it is, are you really being intentional and checking your own emotional baggage about what the other person is doing? Before you put that on somebody else. I'm thinking about it through my own lens, which is cisgender monogamous relationship with a man, I'm a woman. What I'm hearing you say is that there is a framework that, I mean, do you consider it like you're, this is my primary and secondary, like, do you use terminology like that? So that that's what you would call hierarchical. Um, okay. And our version is not really hierarchical, but it's kind of a, it's a hybrid model okay. because I am married, obviously, uh, to my wife. We do share a home together. We share finances. So in those spots, uh, she has say on things. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to who I'm spending time with or like who, now who's going on trips with whom or things like that, it's not like there's a hierarchical system where one person has the final say and is vetoing things. So, okay. so we, we do not use terms like uh, primary or secondary. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so you did mention when you were starting to talk about this with, you know, when you were engaged to your now wife, there was some, some jealousy issues and things like that. That that's where my mind goes immediately is thinking about jealousy right. competition, right? right? Like, oh, now she, now he's going to spend time with his girlfriend or whatever. How did you reconcile that? How did you come to terms with that? And how did you move on together from it was a tough journey uh because at first when we were talking about it it was one-sided it was the idea of having my wife be able to be an an open relationship effectively and have her be able to pursue uh other relationships i thought that that was something that i would be fully okay with like on a logical side i thought that i could be behind that i in fact, there were parts of it that I found very attractive, like I because she was excited about it. I got excited about it. Like I, I could make it into a thing that I was very attracted to. But then the first time that she was with somebody and I lost that communication, I was away from home and I like tried to send her a message and like four hours went by and I hadn't heard from her. Mm -hmm. And having that loss of communication uh, triggered something that I, I couldn't explain. It was like a, something gnawing at my stomach. It was like just this pain. And that was what ended up triggering our big fight because I came home after having been out of contact with her for five or six hours and she was excited. She had had a wonderful night. And I had this pain in my gut because of this jealousy and this loss of control. And, the, and like I felt like it was hurting me. That was what ended up fueling our fight was trying to reconcile those two things. And at first we were going to get back together and she was not going to do that anymore. We were just going to go back to being a closed monogamous relationship. And I saw the, the pain that that caused because I knew she really cared about the person that she had been with um, the, the night before. And, I could, and that person was a friend of mine. And I could see that there was pain from both of them. And we couldn't even make it a whole day with me like watching that pain before I had to have that good conversation and say, hey, no, this is okay. This is a thing I'm okay with. What we started with to get me to where I was comfortable was that I just needed to be in the room or in the house. Like I needed to be around when things were happening 
so that I didn't have that lack of communication so that I wasn't thinking what's going on right now. And once we did that, I suddenly was able to get through that barrier of, of jealousy and that barrier about worrying about loss of control and loss of communication. And it wasn't immediate, but it happened fairly quickly. And, and it was fairly soon after that, that I started recognizing that when I would see stuff online about people being really jealous about things, I would see it. And I would think that that seemed like an unhealthy thing. And I would look at monogamous jealousy culture and I started seeing it as more and more unhealthy. And once I really started to see that, then I started to realize that, no, this was this was really kind of something that I'd always sort of had in me. Um, I knew I know that one of the main pressures that was a problem in my relationship with my ex-wife, I think really she also should have been Polly. Like she had a real interest in that direction. And I ended up developing a bit of a cuckold fetish. Uh, mm. I don't know if you're familiar with how that works, but yeah. uh, it we never actually did anything with it. But the idea of when we would talk in fantasy about her being with somebody else, and it was something that she found attractive. And it was something that I began to fetishize because it was a thing we built on together. And we talked about it a bunch of years later and we realized that that was a thing that we both just kind of built from, from a low point and we built it up together into her being attracted to it and me fetishizing it, but we didn't know that it could go anywhere. We didn't have a comfortable outlet for it. So instead it became a problem in our monogamous relationship because she found that she wanted that and there wasn't a socially acceptable sure. outlet for it. So so once all of that came together and I actually did see my wife being happy in this situation, I realized that I really was never meant to be monogamous. Like looking back uh, for years, I remember when I was in college, I remember having this thought that it would be neat if someday uh, the government came down and said, you're not allowed to, to be monogamous. Like I, it was a stupid thing, but I remember when I was first dating people thinking that, oh, it sure would be nice if, if some entity would tell us that you weren't allowed to do that anymore. And so when I actually finally realized that, like realized that I was polyamorous, I could see that those roots went back a long way and generally not in a way of like, me necessarily wanting to be with multiple partners because normally for me it's actually generally more me wanting to see my partner be happy with multiple people like I really like seeing my partner happy I like seeing any of my partners flirting with somebody enjoying the presence of somebody being comfortable with somebody I I love when I see signs of really healthy relationship between my girlfriend and her boyfriend like when I see them do something that is really healthy and heartwarming, I get really happy about it. So I don't know, There's there are roots of polyamory that are in there that are pretty deep in me and that I didn't recognize for a long time. Ah, and I also, you know, I wonder how many people, if they shook off, you know, shook off the, the heavy cloaks of, uh, patriarchy and, you know, white supremacy and subjugation of women and all these expectations 
about what it means to be a man and a woman and what it means to be like a real man. And your wife doesn't, you have your woman and she doesn't do this and all this stuff, right? All of, all of that. How many people would be happier in those situations? You know, one of the things that we're finally starting to see now, and maybe it's because of the pandemic is because we've been with the people that live in our house almost all the time is that the people that we live with all the time. And for those, you know, most of us who are in, you know, one partnered monogamous relationships, it's our spouse. Um, and you are, you come to recognize the limits of what they are able to give you and what you're able to give them in your relationship and recognizing that oof, for most of us, we need more than what one person can give. And how much healthier would it be for all relationships if I leaned on my spouse for a certain number of things, but we're together because of this. And then this other person, and it needs to be a sexual relationship. I'm with them for that reason, right? Um, you know, and I think about, I think like my best friend, we talk about each other like we're life partners because we are, and there's, there's no sexual attraction there, but like I would, probably wither up and die without her in my life. Um, and my, my intimate relationship with her is just as intimate as in a different way, but just as intimate as with my husband. Well, and I, yeah. And I, I taught it like in the episode with Elisa, because she, uh, identifies as asexual. We were talking about once you're able to kind of like shake off the, the, like, well, you're married to this person, or this is a sexual relationship or any of those kind of patriarchal right like ideals um what does it mean to be in an intimate friendship you know and I think about like the great Esther Perel she says you know we are at a situation now where we used to have these societies that were all interconnected and you would have a teacher and you have a best friend and you'd have someone that you do your exercise with someone you'd cook with and now we look one person to be your best friend, your confidant, your sexual partner, your fantasy, your, mm, your, everything. you know, roommate, everything. And she says something like I'm paraphrasing, but she's like, and we live twice as long. And we wonder why the divorce rate is so high. I think that a lot of people, when they think about polyamory and they think about open relationships, even they think like it's about sex. Right. I, I think <laughs> that, I mean, am I wrong? I agree. I think, Most people do think that. Yes. A lot of people think that. Yes. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not wrong. And I, I I'm going to be honest. I do too, because I'm very like, I don't know anything about polyamory. I am really interested when you talk about you, know, like you and your ex-wife and you're like, sometimes we'll see, like there's, there's intimacy and there's physicality, right. but you could be in a polyamorous relationship and not, it's not sexual is right. what I'm hearing. It's, yeah. it doesn't have to be sexual in nature for it to be one of your partners. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, looking at the polycule that I'm in, um, like my wife has a couple of partners at the moment. What she wants out of polyamory tends to be a little bit different from what I want. And uh, of course, she'll be able to talk to you about that uh, when, you, when you interview her. Um, <laughs> but for her, it's largely about having a connection to a variety of different people. And there are some specific things that she looks for from partners. For me, it's about a greater emotional connection um, especially since I'm also demisexual. Uh, so the fact that for me, what I find really attractive in a person is their 
their, uh, the emotional connection and the mental connection. Um, and then I can move on to, to the sexual connection. Is that the definition of demisexual? A uh, demisexual is a person who does not have a physical sexual attraction in the absence of an emotional or a mental attraction. Uh, so, and this is a thing that I have come into more as I've gotten older. It's always been a little bit of it there. And, and it's not 100%. I can definitely look at people and objectively say, ah, this is a person that society would view as attractive. I can, I can see that. It's not like I don't notice it at all. Sure. But I can't have an actual attraction to somebody that I'm not mentally or emotionally attracted to. Like, like the concept of your freebie five of celebrities. I, I've always had a problem with that because I don't actually know any of these people. And, and I would not want to have an intimate sexual relationship with somebody that I don't know and, and care about. Like that's, that's a huge thing for me. Um, a, a weird thing about me that maybe should have been a sign that I was polyamorous uh, when I was growing up is that I worked out a system. I was, I was a lonely guy in college uh, to a certain extent. I, I stayed home. I didn't have a lot of friends who stayed around. Uh, and I used to walk long periods of time to get to get to class. And I worked out a system in my head where I had like a mental counsel that like, if I was having a bad day or things were going badly, I would like put a different member of my council that was in my head in charge. And so there were like five different aspects of my life that were all kind of represented. There was one that represented my heart and relationships and friendships. There was one that represented school and education and intellectual pursuits. There was one that represented um, art and creativity. And I kind of developed like little mini personalities for these. And if something was going badly in my life, I would switch which one was in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. So if things weren't going well, I think, all right, well, maybe it's time for me to let the general take charge for a while. And he was in charge of health and fitness and well-being. And I have these kind of different aspects that are not like full-fledged personalities. It's not mm -hmm. multiple personality kind of thing, but they're different aspects of myself that I have recognized for years. And the interesting thing that I've found with polyamory is that different partners connect to different of those aspects. And so like, for me, my attraction to my wife was immediately very intellectual. Um, I was, like I said, I was a national merit scholar and I recognized that she was smarter than me and is smarter than me. Like she has ADHD. And so she has had some problems in school that I didn't face but she is incredibly, incredibly intelligent. And my attraction to her started based off of that intelligence because she is just one of the smartest people that I know. That aspect of me is incredibly attracted to her and has found its partner in her. Um, my girlfriend, she is incredibly, incredibly sweet. Uh, she's vegetarian because she does not want to harm any animals or even bugs. Like she will literally brush her teeth in the bathtub if there are ants in the sink. She is an incredibly, incredibly sweet person. And the, the side of me that is all about friendship and heart and kindness, that is immediately, immediately attracted to her. So it's like there are two different council members that both have their own individual partner. Yeah. That's, I love that. I, I love that way of thinking about it too, because 
we're learning that we cannot be everything to one person and they are not everything to us. And so much of that is like, oh, we, there's just so much expectation for, you know, a single person to be all things in a relationship. Esther Perel's work talks a lot about like, how do you maintain desire with intimacy? Desire needs space. Fire needs space. It needs air. Intimacy and friendship are like right on top of each other. Um, and you don't get desire when you have that much intimacy. So how do you maintain those two things? We're not one note people either as people, right. you know, and I, Kosha and I have seen that with each other a lot, which is in different companies and different, in different arenas. The two of us, we know each other so well, and yet we are still seeing sides of our personalities where it's like, oh, I didn't know you'd act like that in this situation. Well, we're seeing that maybe for the first time with each other, but also, you know, we know, everyone knows that they're like, in this kind of situation, they want to act like this, you know, and right. when they're at a party, some people want to like hang back and talk to a couple of people. Some people want to go and talk to everyone. Well, she's talking about herself. She wants to talk to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking about you because you only want to talk to one person <laughs> or two people. But the idea that's like, what if you went to a party with the people who wanted to do what you wanted to do? Or what if you went to a party where everyone wanted to do what you wanted to do? And how much more fulfilling of a of experience would that be if everyone wanted what you wanted in that moment you're a hiker and you're you want to cycle and you want to ski find somebody who really wants to do that and so you're not putting that on somebody else to be like why don't you ever want to go out and do stuff with me absolutely and the interesting thing there is i i have recognized and this is a weird thing <laughs> i'm going to say some things occasionally that are really weird i think that the the general that piece of my uh, my counsel is asexual i think in its own way because i form partnerships that are specifically for physical fitness and are specifically for going to the gym going on hikes and this is a thing that i can look back at my life and recognize that i always have a fitness partner and it is never sexual and it's always a very close relationship. I've gone through a lot of different people who have been fitness partners for me for a couple of years. And the, the feeling of it is very similar to a partnership with an intimate romantic partner. There are things that you share with your gym partner. There are things that you, that you can talk about when you're on these hikes. And yet it doesn't have the sexual component. So I, I have just come to think of it as there are five different council members in my head. Mm -hmm. And... The, uh, the ones that have to do with heart and the one that have to do with intellect, they love to make that strong connection and they want to have that intimacy. The part of me that has to do with physical fitness, it just wants to be able to have a partner for that. And it does not want that, that connection. Wow. And it's actually a thing that both my wife and my girlfriend have expressed in the past that they enjoy not having to go to the gym with me, that they enjoy not having to go on hikes with me. Uh, I had a person that I was going on hikes and going to the gym with for the last couple of years. And basically she would just come pick me up and we go off and we take a four hour hike. And my wife's version of that or a response to that is, I'm glad I didn't have to do that with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we all have those things with, with people that we know with our partners that we're like, oh yeah, you can just do that over there. That's fine. You know, and so many times in, in the kind of like monogamous relationships we've been talking about is 
the other person will begrudgingly come yes. do that thing with you. Like, I really want to go to this party. Fine. If we could leave early, if we like right. blah, 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 you know, um, and, or you're like, well, this is not the partner for me because we don't want to do all of the same things that we want to do with each other. So I guess I have to look for someone else who fills every single tick mark, you know, on yeah. my checklist. Right. Exactly. Like uh, just this last uh, couple of weeks ago, I went on a road trip with my girlfriend. I love bridges. I know that sounds weird. Like I love. Some people like that stuff. That's all, yeah. like, I know. <laughs> no, I mean, and I don't mean that in any yeah. sort of like dismissive way. Like some people love, you know, lighthouses and bridges and things like I that. I was just going to say lighthouses. Yeah. I, I love well, bridges. You know, I love lighthouses. I, my brother-in-law like also went to Humboldt State and lived in Arcata. So, and you remind me a lot of him. Of him. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but like we went on a, a trip um, a week or two ago here. I think it was two weeks now. And as we went up the Oregon coast, like we stopped at all of the different bridges and like, I, I got really into looking at the, the bridge designs of Condé McCullough and like got super into the story and bought a book when we were in Florence, Oregon, all about Condé McCullough's bridge designs. And we had to go stare at individual things. And when I got home, like one of my wife's immediate reactions was, thank God I didn't have to go stare at all those bridges yeah. because like she would have gone along but she would have been really unhappy about it because she would rather be over in Old Town doing Christmas shopping. Like, yeah. It was just not a thing that she would be interested in. No, I, to I totally get that. And you know, just speaking from personal experience right now, my husband has become obsessed. avid is not, that's like <laughs> understating what's going on right yeah. now. An avid, obsessed cyclist. Like he, he now has one, four, five bikes. And he goes out with this group and he's like finding out, you know, he's like, and he's like, keep keeping track of all his stats. And, and he wants to, he's like, Oh, check this out. Check this out. Check up. I was like, that's great. Like, that's my reaction. That's great. I'm not interested in that that much, but that's it. I'm really happy that you have found something that you love and that you have a group of people who also love this stuff as much as you do. I am not interested in it. I'll go on a bike ride with you, but I want to go on like a nice bike ride, like a nice, like, oh, and then we'll stop here and we'll have some coffee and then we'll go home, <laughs> right? Like, I don't, I don't want to do 67 miles or 80 miles when it starts raining. You need to do that with those people, not with me, right? <laughs> and you, and again, it's that, like, I'm glad that you have someone to do this with. That's not me. And it doesn't need to be me. And that's a beautiful thing about having these sort of multifaceted relationships is it doesn't need to be just one person and it doesn't become a point of contention right between you uh, and a partner I think the other thing that's really interesting and Kosh and I were talking about this the other day is this idea of the 80-20 rule I don't know if you've heard that um, but that you know you've been with someone for a while and when you get together with them if you're making a well-considered decision right like sometimes people may get married for reasons maybe they shouldn't well, no one's ever going to be hundred percent as we talked about. And so if you get 80% in a marriage of what you need and want, you're doing real well. But what happens is over time, you don't focus on what you have. You focus on what you don't have. Right. And then you start looking outside your relationship for the 20. That's when people go, you know, they veer away from their initial, you know, their, their relationship to in search of that 20 
and sometimes they give up the 80 for the 20. Um, and that's destabilizing on so many levels, right? And it's hurtful and people feel like, oh, we're supposed to be doing this forever. And then it didn't happen. Polyamory, because it's so well, like you have to be intentional about what you're doing. And both people have to agree, right? It's, you can't, one person just can't be like, I'm gonna tell you what I'm doing. Right. Good luck with this. You're gonna have to deal with it. <laughs> right, because, because it's both intentional and commitment-based, you can go out and find that 10% you're missing without giving up the 80 that you already have. Right, absolutely. Have you found that to be true both, you know, sort of it, in your life, but also in your polycule and other people's polycules that you might- Oh yeah, absolutely. Coming up against? Like for instance, my Oh, girlfriend. like molecule, polycule. Yeah, polycule. Got it, okay. That took a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. All right. Is that when like, I said bump up against and you start, you got the image of molecules? Is that uh, yeah, I'm going to edit that and put it way at the beginning. So it doesn't sound like an hour in is when I'm like, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it, absolutely. For instance, my girlfriend and her uh, other partner have been together for a very long time. Like as long as I have known her, she has had some form of relationship with her other partner. And we first met about eight, nine years ago. Uh, we've only been dating uh, for a little over a year at this point, uh, but we've been good friends for a very long time. Uh, and she has been with her other partner for most of that decade. They have a very close relationship in some ways. Like they, they work very well together. They are best friends. They have a very joking relationship with each other, but the thing that is in her 20, that, that she has been missing on that is like physical touch and intimacy because like he likes a certain amount of distance a lot of the time. Her love language is touch and my love language is also touch. So she can come in and snuggle mm. and like know that she can cuddle up against me. And like that is a part thing that she was missing in her other relationship. Uh, so yeah, I, I've absolutely uh, seen that. If you were under the restraints of a monogamous relationship, then either she misses out that what she needs in terms of that intimacy or the or the touching, or she goes elsewhere right. under the guise of secrecy, shame, right. cheating in this way, like Shalisha was saying, you're not giving up or risking this right. amazing relationship that you've built you know, because you're missing that one piece. The, the thing that's really interesting there is the idea of non-consensual non-monogamy, which is cheating. Like I've known people who have cheated and I can look at the reasons- In polyamorous relationships or in monogamy? Uh, no, well, I mean, you, I have actually known people who've cheated in polyamorous relationships. That's a thing you can do too. Um, and in polyamorous relationships, I do know a polyamorous, a polyamorous relationship that, that broke up and did not work, uh, that were a couple of good friends of mine. And there was uh, allegedly cheating in that relationship because in polyamory, you do have to have set guidelines and things that people are agreeing to. And if, for instance, you had a partner that you knew you couldn't tell your partner about, the, the rules of your relationship are that you have open communication about that and you went behind their back and told yourself it was okay because you're polyamorous, that's still cheating. Um, so there is, there's definitely cheating in polyamorous relationships. But what I end up being fascinated with is people in 
monogamous relationships who I think of as very good people, but then I find out that they, they cheat on their partner for, for one reason or another. And a lot of times you can look at it and see what they were missing in the relationship that caused them to go do that. And I think that what happens after that is they, they're missing the thing for a long time. They're missing the thing. Then they go out and try to get the thing under the cloak of secrecy. And then that causes deep shame. And then that hurts them. And every time that I've seen that, it seems like that person ends up in a cycle of not respecting themselves and having destructive tendencies that come about because of the shame that they have because of what they did by cheating on a partner. So that's definitely a thing that I've become hyper aware of now that I've become polyamorous because I can look at it and and think, no, just, just communicate, Mm -hmm. just communicate and do this right. Go out and, and successfully and healthily get the thing that you need in your relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think part of that is like both people have to be willing to communicate that, you know, if, let's say in, in a situation where you have two people and one person is like, I'm not getting this, the touch person a tried to communicate that to person B and person B is like, well, I just don't do that. I mean, that communication has to go both ways, which in, in your situation, at least, or these polyamorous, you know, frameworks, it seems like the communication is like first and foremost. We know someone who was in an open relationship, um, married in an open relationship, and then they separated. And there was a lot of like, you know, gossip mongering and things like that. That was like, well, it was because like they were setting themselves up for failure because they were in an open relationship. And, you know, Shailisha and I talked about it. It's like, no, because every relationship, no matter what it is, a friendship, a work relationship, whatever it is, marriage, is built on a contract. It's not, it's not about sex. It's not about love. It's built on some kind of contract. When one person goes outside of that contract, that's cheating. Your contract says as a baseball player, not supposed to take drugs and you take steroids. You broke the contract. You cheated. The contract terms are just so different with polyamory and with open relationships and things like that, but you can still break the terms of the contract. Absolutely. One of the more brilliant things about polyamory is that if you're in a heterosexual, cisgendered, monogamous relationship, you just have this idea of like, this is what we need to be doing, right? Right. And, And you don't actually have conversations about what do you expect? What do I want? How are we gonna negotiate the difference between, you know, what you expect and, and what I, on any number of things, right? So if you, maybe you grew up in a family where uh, one parent always put dinner on the table and everyone ate together. And then the, the other person grew up in a family where that wasn't possible. And, and you just sort of like having dinner together wasn't what everyone did. And so that's immediately going to cause tension. That's just a small example of like, well, why aren't you coming to have dinner at the same time? Absolutely. Well, I didn't know that we had to do that. Right. And so just take something that small, that's easy to, well, I would say easy, but I'm sure that causes all kinds of tension for people. You make all these assumptions about what it's supposed to be like, and then you just go down the path and you aren't actually communicating in truly healthy relationships. You do communicate in polyamorous relationships, you must communicate. Absolutely. There's no, you cannot make assumptions about anything, you know, 
which days of the week are okay and what kind of people and do you want me home or not and what's the timing and you know just what are you going to do like any you have to really talk through every single thing um but it also forces people to own their own shit which yep. is also what i love because no one can put stuff on you just like no no that's that's your thing and we can talk about that but i'm not responsible for your stuff can we talk a little bit about then when things change David. So let's say, okay, I, I, I'm making this up clearly, so please correct me. But if, if you didn't like the person who your wife was seeing or sleeping with, or I don't like this anymore and I need to tighten it up or I need to change something or she needs to change something. Now we're not just talking about two people. We're talking about an exponential number of people as, as you grow that framework how does the idea of changing aspects of this, this contract, this polyamorous contract, how does that work with you? Well, so much of it is about open communication and understanding why people want the things that they want. And especially recognizing when the change is based off of one person trying to control another person. Looking at, is this a, you feel a need to have control situation? Is it fear-based? Is it based off of insecurity? Like figuring out what partners need and having like really, really deep conversations about it is incredibly important. And I've had really very close, very deep conversations with uh, both my wife and my girlfriend very regularly about different needs, especially as insecurities come up, because insecurities absolutely do, uh, do crop up figuring out when an insecurity comes up, well, what's the cause of it? And what do we need to do to address it? I think in our relationships, we've been very, very careful about not having anybody step in to interfere in another relationship by trying to control each other. There's a lot of I statements. I feel this, I feel that, I need this, I need that. And very, very little in the way of trying to control relationships with other people. We just have established boundaries as people go into the relationship. I mean, that's so great because I can just imagine, you know, if you're spending t a lot of time with a person, a partner, um, and then your wife goes, well, you're spending so much time with them. Well, okay, but what's this, what's going on behind that? And then your wife then has to say, I feel lonely. I miss you. I want to spend more time right. with you. And I'm realizing that because I haven't seen you as much as I would like, right? Instead of right. being like, why are you doing this? It's, I need this. Right. What's just a more honest way to come to a relationship? Because if someone goes, you're doing this, you're like, well, don't tell me what to do. Or will you do that? Like there's two options, like either A, back off or B, well, what about what you do? But if someone comes to you and says, hey, I miss you. I, I would like to find time more time for us to spend together well you have two options there one option is like fuck off which is really awful right if someone says that to you <laughs> if you say i miss you and i want to spend more time with you and that person goes fuck off then you have a big problem yeah <laughs> that, that's not so much about insecurity probably. no right and then you're then you're probably with someone who you shouldn't be with right uh, but if the if you say that to someone they go yeah let's let's figure that out it just takes the, all the tension out of it yeah so that's and one of the things that's been huge for us is uh, being able to put the phone in do not disturb mode. If I, we actually need to communicate with each other, you can always call, like have that, 
have that number that can come through. But otherwise, when I'm spending time with uh, with Caitlin, then the phones in do not disturb mode. Uh, and then Kelsey can call me if she needs to, but we're not texting back and forth all the time. Sure. Uh, and when I'm having like an established date night with Kelsey, I'll do the same thing. So if we're like watching a movie, we're watching something, uh, put that phone in do not disturb mode and just set that other relationship aside for the moment and focus on the person that you're with. <laughs> that's so, I mean, that's so great too. And that's a lesson for all of us, right? I mean, oh yeah. whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's just Facebook or whatever, to be able to put stuff aside and really give that focus to the person that you're with at the time is such a gift. I wanted to ask then, how does being demisexual tie in with polyamory? Does that, because what you've described is a system where one person could have multiple partners, sexual partners even at various levels, right? Um, and another person could have two partners that may or may not be sexual. Just from your own perspective, I'm not certainly not gonna ask you to speak for everyone, um, but how has that worked for you in terms of finding partners or like, is it something that you, that you have gone to seek or do those people come into your life and you're just like, I like this person. Oh, let's spend some more time together. Okay, and then like, that's how it develops. It's worked very differently for my wife and I, because what she specifically wants in polyamory is different from what I want in general. Um, she is, she tends to be a lot kinkier than I am. <laughs> uh, and so she has definitely had more partners and some of those are more short-term and more sexual in nature. Um, she is very interested in that and has therefore gone out and met people that way. Like, She's had a, a FetLife account and found people who are interested in the things that she's interested in and met up with them and got to know them specifically because she wanted to try having a sexual relationship with them. I, as a demisexual, I'm very much on the other end of the spectrum. Like, I am not even interested in that with a person that I don't know. I would be so uncomfortable. Like, if you put me in an orgy, I would be the most uncomfortable guy in the room. Like, I'm, I'm so not interested in that. That is so to the far end of my not comfortable scale. So for me- no, It's well, just funny to think about like, if you put me in an orgy. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I've had situations where I've been with friends who were very, very comfortable. And if there was one specific situation I can think of where I saw what looked like an orgy starting to develop. And I realized, I think people are trying to push us toward an orgy. And I went into the, that we'd been in a hot tub. I went into the bathroom, put on all of my clothes and just showed up and was like, hi guys, I'm leaving. Like I put on all the clothes, mine, yes. other people's, I'm just putting exactly. on clothes. <laughs> I would be the most uncomfortable man at any orgy. The only time that would work is if that was someone else's fetish. <laughs> like I really want the uncomfortable guy in the corner. <laughs> Go on and put on all the clothes. I know. I want the guy who's super uncomfortable <laughs> and puts on everyone's clothes. I want that guy. <laughs> that's that's a tough fetish to arrange, yeah. uh, but I'm the guy if you if you need that guy. Like, that's not what I look for at all. So for me, it is very definitely a, I've had a long-term friendship with this person. I have known them for years and years. And now that friendship can develop into something else. And maybe uh, that something else is a lot of times just more close and comfortable and snuggly. And I've 
I've had like that kind of a friendship with a variety of people, but we haven't specifically like called each other partners. Like over the years, even before I was Polly, there were times where I would have a friend who just needed somebody to snuggle because I'm a very snuggly guy. And so now that I am Polly and it's recognized, like the thing for me that I get out of polyamory is being able to take a long established friendship and be able to find something deeper in it. Um, and yeah. that is not necessarily always sexual or intimate in nature. Well, it, it's got a certain intimacy, but it's, it doesn't have to be sexual. Right. Physically intimate. It doesn't yeah. have to be physically intimate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You've said that your wife is bi. Um, you do not identify as bi. So, but when you talk about some of these relationships that have become so intimate and they may not have a sexual aspect to them have you found some of your partners to be men as well or when you think about outside of friendships in your polyamory it is heterosexual in that way um it's interesting i'm i am so not interested sexually in men but i'm incredibly comfortable with men and i'm i've been in theater for a long time i have done a show where i where i dressed in drag like i I've definitely had some very close, very intimate friendships with men over the years, but it has never been sexual in nature just because I'm not interested in that mm -hmm. aspect. Mm -hmm. But I, I can definitely say some of those really, really close, very intimate friendships have definitely been with men. You don't have children. Yeah, I, I've talked about having children with my wife. My girlfriend has zero interest. She does not want to have kids. As far as like what those children would grow up with, we would want to just make sure to, in a, a plain, clear, healthy way, be honest and open and, and show a sign of healthy polyamory. Like, I think our society makes it into something that needs to be shameful. Mm -hmm. That's something that I see like in, in representation. There is just, there is no really healthy representation of polyamory in our culture you will look at things on, on Facebook. There'll be memes or stuff going around and there'll be something that says, oh, my wife, this, my girlfriend, that. And everybody's like, oh boy, he's busted. And it's like, no, people tend to forget that polyamory exists as an option because they don't see any options of it in right. culture. So, so when people talk to me about, well, what would your kids be like raised like that? I'm like, well, they'd be raised in a very healthy, very loving household just because their parents are polyamorous doesn't mean that they have anything that they would need to feel any sort of shame about. And it's not something that needs to be hidden from them. Yeah. I think it's really, you know, again, that goes to sort of how much patriarchy and control of women and, you know, white supremacy, all this stuff like feeds into all of this, which is like, if people actually saw polyamory being depicted in it's healthy state, like the way most people practice it, because otherwise you can't, you can't really be polyamorous if you're not being it, doing it healthily. Right. Otherwise right. it just like devolves into all kinds of mess. I think it's just too threatening for the status quo to see networks of people who care about each other deeply, who can speak about their own needs and communicate those needs to their partners and have those needs heard and respected and that no one gets to tell anyone else what to do. Adults. I mean, the children will always need to be told what to do because children will always do things where you're like, don't do like, that's really dangerous, right? Don't do that thing. Don't jump, don't off, jump off that thing, right? <laughs> don't stick that fork into the, into that lid.
all those things. This like, well, you can't do that because I'm not going, or I don't like it when you do that. I don't like it when you wear this outfit, or I don't like it when you go out to party, or I don't like it when you stay home and don't party. That that would somehow be uh, some sort of passive control on someone. And that the other person is then obligated to do or not do something because your partner doesn't like it. The thing that startles me now that never startled me before, but like I see all of these unhealthy examples of, I would have rolled my eyes about it before I was polyamorous, but examples of toxic monogamy where people specifically want to be the only person of their gender in their partner's life. If it's a a cis relation, a cis hetero relationship a woman who does not want her man to have any female friends or a man who does not want his woman to have any male friends. They just want to cut an entire half, well, not a half, but 45% of the human race out of their partner's life as far as friendships, family, all of that because of their own insecurities. Like they are so set on being the one person who fills all of their partner's needs They have tied their identity into being able to be the one male or the one female who meets all of their partner's needs, emotionally, intellectually, recreationally, everything. And now I sit and I look at that on social media and I think, how could that possibly be healthy? And I look at people in my life who were cut out of my life in one way or another because they started dating somebody And that person was very controlling of them and their time. And suddenly they weren't allowed to be with their friends anymore Mm -hmm. or big aspects of their life had to change because they were in relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is missing in the world of polyamory. Like there, it is so much less about a partner controlling another person's choices and trying desperately to be everything to that person. Wow. I mean, that's such, what a great like wrap up or a great summary of what polyamory um, really is, not not people having orgies all the time and not people just doing whatever they want all the time either. And I Please think know on the orgy thing. Yeah, we, we know David's not. <laughs> Please know on the orgy thing. <laughs> David says no way. If you're, missing, if you're at an orgy and you're missing your clothes, <laughs> call David because he <laughs> probably put them all on because he was like, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> I don't know if it's people fetishizing the fact that they could have multiple sexual partners because most people actually might want to have multiple sexual partners. You know, going back to Esther Perel's idea of desire and intimacy and wow, sometimes that person that you've been talking to at work that makes you laugh and makes, you know, kind of gives you a compliment and you feel kind of perky and special around them. Wow. You would like to cash in on that feeling a little bit more. It makes you feel special. Um, And it may be something that you're missing. If you've been with someone for a long time, that's those little butterflies go away. They just do, right? And so they they glamorize that part of it because it it looks like a license to do whatever you want. Um, (laughs) And it seems like- Which is not. I was gonna say, talking to you, the reality is it's almost the exact opposite. It is the license to ask for whatever you want and need, but not a license to go and do whatever you want. Right. And, and especially because when you're pulling in multiple partners, you're dealing with the wants and needs of multiple people. There's going to be a lot of insecurities in there and there's going to be extra communication in there. And if you do something 
that is outside of the boundaries of what you've communicated, then there are extra people who are being hurt. Um, so it's, it's not like there's a, there's less commitment. There's actually more commitment because you have more people who might be hurt and who care about the outcomes of things. Yeah. So the idea that you've just got this freedom to go out and, you know, Bang act a bunch on of every people. Impulse, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's exactly the opposite of what, what I've experienced at least, which is that, instead of feeling the freedom to go act on every tiny impulse, like I feel this connection to multiple people who all care and who I don't want to hurt under any circumstances. So well, you're like, if I do this, if I act on this impulse, I, I'm affecting multiple people. And so you actually hold yourself back more and think about it more because you're like, okay, this is not just going to screw over myself or my, you know, one person. And I'm thinking like, Shulshi, it's really interesting because you're like, you know, if you have this person at work that kind of like mm. makes you feel fluttery and, and you like the attention. I even just now and after this hour and a half, I'm thinking like in the lens of what we're talking about, it's not like, well, it's because my husband doesn't say that I look nice in this new suit or whatever. It's because I missed that he used to. Right. So it's like, it's, it's then being able to say like, okay, maybe it's not that he's not doing something or that this person can give me something that I don't have, but it's up to me to then go to my husband and say, you know, I I'm feeling this way. And like, we've been together for 20 years and, and, you know, I noticed that we don't say X, Y, Z to each other anymore. And that just immediately turns your defenses off. And when you say like, I need versus you don't, you, you start communicating in a different way. Absolutely. That's 100% my experience. As far as the person at work that you're flirting with, like, once again, that comes down to who, what people want in polyamory and what the relationships are. Mm -hmm. Like, I know that with me as a partner, if one of my partners is flirting with a person at work and they're interested in experiencing that and they, they, they want to feel what it's like to have that flirtation, I 100% encourage it because of the idea of compersion you experience joy at the joy of your partner having joy. Like the idea that your partner is out doing something that gives them butterflies and so you're happy for them. Like I get that real hard. I get compersion hard. Like if I see, like I know my girlfriend is pretty darn shy. And if I see her flirt with somebody a little bit, like she does not flirt a ton. And when I see her flirt with somebody, my heart gets happy because I'm like, I can see her flirting with somebody. I know she's feeling good feelings right now. I feel those good feelings for her. Yeah. I think the other thing that's really interesting, right, is that, you know, we just talked about, like, you can't just do whatever you want. In fact, you have to be more considerate and more careful. And so does everyone else that you're connected to, at least in your polycule, right? So if you bring something to Kelsey and say, Hey, I want, you know, this is what I need from you. I'm asking of this from you. And it may affect Kelsey's partner. Kelsey's partner has to be committed to what Kelsey has to give you, right? Kelsey's partner in a way has to be committed to your happiness and you, you getting your needs met. Sometimes you're not going to be able to do all those things, right? So you have to balance and then you have to communicate. Oh, I can't do this because of X and Y and Z or I, um, I'm choosing to do this and I'll make it up to you later or whatever it is, right? They're all, just how far those commitments and communication strings have to go is, is mind boggling to people who aren't 
Like if you just think about it, if every person that you're with is connected to one other person, it's you to you, and then you each have one and they each have one, how long that string might go. And it's an interesting mix. Like there is someone in the polycule who started out being ace, then decided that they wanted to explore some things. And so she is basically one of the ends because she has found a partner that she is interested in exploring oh, things see. with. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. but she does not want to have an additional partner beyond that. Uh, so we've just come to a sure. couple of ends. All right. Some of the problems that we've run into with telling people, because obviously um, that has been a big effect on our lives uh, because oh, yeah. there, you get a lot of negative feedback in some ways because of society's expectations and because of uh, people thinking that it's in some way broken. The, the coming out process has been, has been difficult and is still incomplete. Like, um, as I've mentioned, I'm, I'm not out at work. Um, I'm not out everywhere. When I make a post on Facebook, like when my girlfriend and I had an anniversary here just recently, I made a post on Facebook. I have, I don't know, somewhere around a little under a thousand Facebook friends and the post was visible for 300 of them. So about two thirds of them were in the category of, I think this person is too, mm -hmm. too religious or too uh, conservatively minded, or this is a person who is directly connected to somebody who shouldn't know about it. Or um, it took a long time for things to come out to family. And I still have some family members who are very judgmental. I've had things that have come back through through the gossip chain because I haven't even talked to a lot of my family mm -hmm. about it. And I will hear things about, People talking about how, you know, I was always, I was always the favored child and now I'm the black sheep of the family or stuff like that. Like the concept that because I'm Polly, somehow I'm doing something wrong, uh, which is something that I'd never experienced in my life. Like I mentioned, I was, I was a National Merit Scholar. I, I wasn't a, I wasn't an only child, but I was the baby of the family by so far that it was practically like I was an only, only child. I had much older siblings my accomplishments were always super celebrated and I always felt mm. special and loved and protected. And to have a lot of those people look at something that I'm doing that they don't understand and just shame it or say that I'm the black sheep of the family all of a sudden or things like that is fascinating and painful. The, the process of coming out has been very difficult. I, I hadn't come out to my mother. Uh, my mother is almost 80. I hadn't come out to her for the first uh, five months or so that uh, Kelsey and I were Polly, and she could tell that something was going on, uh, and she could tell that people weren't telling the truth to her, and it was really causing some problems and some strain in our relationship. And so on my birthday, I sat her down and I said, Mom, this is something that is incredibly, incredibly important to me. And I want you, I want to tell you this, and I don't want you to react to it immediately. I want you to listen and I want you to think about it and know that this is special and precious to me and know that I've thought about it a lot. And I told her, and she's been very open and responsive in a lot of ways. She's been very helpful. Uh, she and Caitlin and I have been spending time together. She's been very good about taking it well. Um, as far as you could expect from someone who's basically 80. 
But at the same time, she will regularly just kind of touch base and do that, making sure I'm not being pushed into anything and like mm -hmm. say some things that come across kind of judgmentally because she comes from a very, very monogamous lens. And some of the ways that things have been passed on to other family members, there's a lot of judgment that goes in there. And, and the idea that because I'm Polly, I should feel shame about it, which is not accurate. I, and so I've had to have conversations with her where she will start to talk about making sure that I'm not being pushed into making any wrong decisions and where I tie things back to uh, her time when she first got together with my father and the people who told her that she was making the wrong decision because he was much older, he was divorced, he had kids, and the way that she knew that what she was doing was right and she stuck through with it because she knew that it was right and the way that that came out. And when I can tie my experience back to her experience like that, then she understands it to a certain extent. I love what you're saying right now, because honestly, that exactly what you said about tying experiences together is the reason that Shayla, she and I even started this podcast, wanting to A, give platform to people who have been othered. And exactly, I mean, without using the word othered, you're exactly explaining what that is, is someone thinks that you should feel this way, that way, and the other way. And, you know, you're supposed to feel shame about this. This is somehow subversive. This somehow broken or sick or something. And, you know, you don't get a place at the table. And the other, the, the next part is that when you start communicating and finding connection, it's really hard to, to judge them or other them in the same way. Is there rep, a polyamorous representation, like even in anything? Like I, I'm, tr I'm like racking my own brain, but is there anything in like media, television, movies that you could point to that's a polyamorous example? The, the enormous problem there is, like you mentioned before, the idea that it's fetishized because people think, oh, it would sure be great to be able to have this sexual relationship with another person. So that polyamorous representation, almost non-existent in, in media. And so what dominates that market, so to speak, is like the idea of threesomes in porn or things like that. And so that's what people think about is the idea of it being a fully fetishized sexual thing instead of understanding the actual nuance of what it is. I'm constantly looking for polyamorous representation in media and not finding any. I'm a theater teacher and I had a scene in one of my classes where three of my kids ended up having their characters have a relationship together at the end. And one of them said, and I am not open at work at all. And one of them said, out loud to the class, look guys, finally polyamorous representation in a, and on stage. And I wanted to just be like, thank you. Yes, this is what we need. But instead I had to keep my face completely straight. Didn't say anything about it, but yeah, it, it's something that is not out there and not understood. My girlfriend has been watching a web comic specifically that she's been reading for a long time. And it's got the love triangle. And the idea of the love triangle is so tired and it's so everywhere. And she's been watching one specific webcomic because she was thinking that it might be going to go a different direction and end in a polyamorous relationship. So we're looking for it, seeing if it happens. Uh, as far as representations in media at all, uh, there's a tiny bit in the Wheel of Time series. If you look at the oh. uh, Green Aja Warders, 
Uh, they have relationship, or not warders, uh, Green Aja Aes Sedai, they have relationships with multiple warder, uh, warders. And the interesting thing to me, my ex-wife always identified with gr the Green Aja and like she was super into Wheel of Time, which looking back at it later and knowing that she really had those poly tendencies that we didn't wow. really know about or recognize yeah. at the time, I think that was probably her latching onto one spot in popular media where she could feel represented. Shale, she's oldest child is non-binary. This next generation, right? Like this, this Gen Z and even like my daughter who's seven that, that what Gen, Gen Alpha, I think, I don't know. There's this openness to breaking those boundaries that is just unseen before. I'm wondering if, you know, because of us, I'm going to, I'll pat myself on the back, but because, you know, Gen X and millennials are, are starting to soften those, those boundaries if then this Gen Z and Gen Alpha are just going to be like, those boundaries just don't need to be there anymore, which you're seeing in your high school class. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely seeing, like, like I mentioned, that was mentioned in my high school class. I regularly or fairly regularly have students in classes who are coming out as trans. Uh, and generally, drama is one of the spots where they see it as a safe spot. To, to come out. So I tend to be one of the first teachers to hear about it. But I'm, I'm, I'm definitely seeing this generation being really accepting of it. Having someone be able to, in a class with a bunch of people who have no, who haven't been exposed to it, aren't expecting it, have someone come out and say, these are my pronouns now, this is my name now, and having everyone in the class just immediately go with it everyone just picks it up with no question and starts calling them by that name and using their pronouns properly. And that's incredible to me. So I want to plant an idea in your head. I would love to see you write or produce something that would actually put out the depiction of a loving, healthy, polyamorous set polycule, right? What would that look like on stage? I'm pretty sure you can't do it where you work. Yeah. But over the summer, you've got two weeks at Christmas, <laughs> <laughs> one week in the spring, and then you've got all summer. So when we talk to you next year at this time, we can talk to you about your new, uh, your new work. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the idea. I, uh, I've got to admit, like, it is really tough putting yourself out there and putting your identity out there. Um, even as I look at the idea of writing something, because I, I do write, I enjoy it. I still find myself writing in those same tired love triangles when I write stuff and I hate it because I look at it now and I like, I have a tough time with the love triangle trope. I have a tough time with the jealousy trope. So I, I think it's a great idea. I would love to eventually, eventually. Well, Annette, we had, we had a, gay Muslim actor on um, and we had a trans 16 year old self-taught makeup artist. So we could like fill out your roster. Shulshi and I would be consultants and producers. Yeah. Right. We'll fill it to the brim <laughs> for you. Uh, you just have to, you just have to write it down, but I, you know, uh -huh. I think it's really, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Just write it down. I mean, come on, you have one job. <laughs> and you mentioned in the beginning that you had a certain level of privilege growing up and people who have had privilege their whole lives, either it's affluence privilege or 
or race or whatever it is, gender. And it sounds like you kind of had all three, right? That's really, really, really hard to give up. Can you talk about that a little? Is that, is that part of this? Yeah, it's, it's easy to want to hide because if you aren't out with everybody, if you're only out where it's safe, you can feel embraced and safe there and then still put on that privilege when you need to. And I feel terrible about saying that, but it's so tough to be out everywhere and know that you have to face criticism everywhere. When you have an identity that people don't understand or don't agree with, it's really tough to have to defend it all the time. You're a polyamory ambassador everywhere you go. That's exhausting. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Suddenly people see you as that polyamorous guy instead of seeing you as everything else that you are. Um, and so that's one reason why, like, to a lot of my very close friends who are very accepting of it, it's fantastic to be out and have them know because they know me for who I am. And it's not, polyamory isn't my branding. And that's that's the danger. That's the scary part about the idea of putting your identity out there like on stage is suddenly having that be your only identity. There are a lot of things about me that I like to think are, are fascinating and worthwhile. You know, I love bridges, <laughs> but they won't think of me as that guy who loves bridges. They'll think of me as that guy who's Polly. They will think about you as the guy who loves multiple bridges. <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it was, it was low hanging fruit. <laughs> That was good. See, we can help with the writing too. That's really good. Well, there we go. But just to be really clear and sensitive about what we were just talking about um, is that it is tough, right? I think, and Kosha and I, we grew up in a little Illinois town where at least one part of our identity was, you couldn't, you couldn't hide from that, but there were many other parts of our identity that people didn't even see because they just saw this. They just saw color brown a brown person in a you know a largely white town and we were doctors kids and so then there was like there's just like what are the things that are very very up you know at the front of the line and then you can only go through so many of those things people don't even get to know you then because right. they just see the top three or four things and they're like oh you're this you're this you're this you're this um and you as you you as a person get lost in all the labels that people want to slap on you. Oh, you're that guy. You're you're the teacher. You're the theater teacher. You're the poly theater teacher. Um, you know who likes bridges. That's it. That's all you're ever going to be. Um, instead of all the other layers of you, and then you become the poly guy who like who teaches theater who likes bridges, as opposed to being David. Yeah. On that note, I wanted to ask then, what advice would you give? to a younger version of yourself or some kid in your class who might be thinking about this or just to anyone who might be thinking about like, am I poly, what would that mean? Or maybe I'm demisexual or maybe I'm, you know, how would I combine the two things? I would say that shame is a painful thing that coils up around you and digs into you. It's like barbed wire that's wrapped around you wearing shame that isn't even your own, like just things that society tells you you need to do and letting yourself be ashamed of the things that you feel and the things that you want because they're not what society tells you you should feel or want. Um, 
is just hurting yourself and denying who you are. Like the key thing is being able to unwrap that and look at it and say, why am I feeling shame about this? Is it something that has to do with me? Or is it something that has to do with other people's expectations? And if it's about other people's expectations, then why do those expectations exist? Do they apply to me? Do I care? Being able to separate that out and, and not assume that just because you want something than other people means you're wrong and you need to feel shame about it. Because if you let it, shame will just dig into you and physically hurt you. I know I've gone through ulcers. Uh, I, I went through ulcers in my uh, bleeding ulcers in my uh, in my first relationship as it was falling apart, and a lot of that had to do with internalized shame about the things that we wanted or the the ways that that we didn't fit into society's mold. I feel like every single person that we've asked this question this season has not just has talked about their own experience, but has advice that guidance that's useful for everybody. Right. Whether it's, you know, the shame piece, that's helpful if you're like, you know what, I don't really want to get married or I want to get married or I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to go and be a mural artist, a hat embroiderer. (laughs) I mean, people have shame about things like I'm not following in my family's footsteps or I don't want to marry the person that my, you know, I don't want to get married the way my parents would like me to get married, or I'm, you know, I'm doing something that is against my, my family's culture, even something like that, you know, where it's not, doesn't have to be shameful, but you can absorb shame from people's disapproval of you not following their rules. The expectation piece. Yeah. It's the expectations. That is awesome. So now we're going to just add a little levity. So um, just to, to end on, because we end every episode with uh, familect, which is, again, family varieties of words. If you can, uh, can you talk about a little of your familect, either with anyone in your polycule, your family, your found family, your theater family? What are some words, phrases that you use that someone else would know, but like Shilsh and I would not know? Yeah. Oh, so many. There are just so many. Like I have different communication with everybody. And like my dad was who really started me on that. My dad had so many random things that he would say that I just assumed were words that other people used. I love like I grew until I was in my 30s before I realized that people didn't call dogs per pounds because my dad would call dogs per pounds per pounds. Per pounds, like P-U-R-P-H-O-U-N-D-S, per pounds. I, that's not even how I would have spelled it, but okay. And <laughs> and he would call them per pounds. And I just assumed that, that that was a word, that that was a word and that everybody would know what I was talking about if I said per pound. And then one day I looked it up online because like I used it in a poem or something and people were like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> that's I looked it up online and I'm like, it must be a Midwestern thing could not find it anywhere. I yeah. think it was just a thing my dad did. Yeah. He called, they called dogs per pounds. Wow, uh, that's great. But uh, yeah, <laughs> my, my wife and I do that all the time with so many words. Like our language is constantly evolving all the time. Uh, we don't call slippers slippers. Like we'll call them our feet. So I'll walk into a room and I say, I can't find my feet. Where are my feet? And she'll point to my slippers or my, my glasses are my eyes. And I'll walk in and I'm saying, I can't find my eyes. And she'll show me where my eyes are. 
nice. headphones, those are ears. Like, so they're, your body parts are the things that actually like help those body parts exist. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's so great. I like this. That's really, that's really, really great. Yeah, we constantly have evolving words with, uh, and sometimes it's interesting because I'll have differently evolved ones with my wife or with my girlfriend. I was going to say, yeah, with, now you have like multiple relationships. They evolve different you? directions. Yeah. With my wife, yeah. if she's going to take a nap, she calls it sneeps, like S-N-E-E-P-S. And my girlfriend calls them smeeps, S-M-E-E-P-S. So when I, <laughs> when I'm talking to, I have to remember have to, who I'm talking to when I ask if they're going to have sneeps or smeeps. Oh my god! Oh my god! That sounds like a Dr. Seuss book right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! It's a Dr. Seuss book about polyamory. There oh, we that's go. A great <laughs> idea. It's a children's book about polyamory. And the best thing about it is, is if if it was written under a pseudonym, you wouldn't uh, even you end up out there. There we go. It's oh brilliant. Done. We're doing it. Okay. <laughs> Next summer, we're going to interview David, the author. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have been fantastic and open yes. and vulnerable. And um, I've enjoyed every minute of talking to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being like, hey, we need to talk about how hard this is. The people who listen to our podcast are, you know, it's, it's like preaching to the choir that the people who are listening are like, oh, I'm really interested in other people's stories. But we also have to remember that, you know, the choir needs practice and we need to remember how hard it is to come out and how hard it is to be othered and how the people over here in this BIPOC community have to support the people over here in this LGBTQ spectra community because the othering happens at a whole different level. So that I'm, I really appreciate you saying like, Hey, this is, there's trauma here and we need to talk about this. Yeah. So I, that, thank you so much for that. Thank you for the opportunity. It was really nice to be able to talk to you. Honestly, you don't get to have these kind of conversations uh, very often. <laughs> how often do you get to sit down and, and talk for two hours about your identity and how tough coming out is and, and things like that. Uh, so thank you for the opportunity. It was, it was nice to speak. It was amazing and thank you again. You know how they say, like, no one puts baby in the corner. Don't let anyone push you into an orgy. Oh, okay. If they do, I'll put on all the clothes. I'll put on all the clothes. <laughs> I'm leaving. I know my job. Awkward guy in the corner wearing all the clothes. Well, you know, what's really interesting about that is during the orgy, people don't want clothes. But at some point, people are going to want their clothes back. So it's a definite, like, leave me out of this or I'm taking all of your clothes. That's a power play, David. That's a super <laughs> yeah, power yeah. play. At the end of the orgy, I just run down the street in everybody's clothes and yeah. then they're stuck. And in then the know what they're going to do. Yeah. yeah. They won't put you in that situation again. Let me tell you. So, okay. Thank you so, Thank very you much, for your so time. much. And it was a pleasure. Uh, Thank you, you. Yeah. We will. I will let you know um, when everything's going to be up and running. And then you can let those 300 people know that uh, you did something awesome. 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 Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye. You too.